Recorded live. Good late evening, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to our first Political Straight Talk of the Week. I am your host, Fabian, and my, uh, who has become my co-host, Joseph, is on with you this evening, and I'm going to do things a little differently. Usually I go into my time still and whatnot, and, and today I'm going to do things a little differently. Uh, as many of you know, on our last episode, we had some hecklers uh, come in and basically cause us a lot of problems. Well, what happened was I had left the call off of mute and was doing it remotely, so I could not see that they had bombed the program. Uh, we have had some positive feedback. We have had some negative feedback. Um, most people thought that we handled it quite well in just letting them say what they needed to say and move on because, after all, uh, this is a country where free speech is protected. Even if it's free speech, that the guy standing next to you is yelling at the top of his lungs what you would stand and yell at the top of yours again. And that was what we witnessed. And I did not edit it out, will not edit it out. Um, so just so you all know that we're okay with it going through. If you don't want to hear it, then simply fast forward about seven minutes and you're through with it. Uh, also, we are really working to get political straight talk about the U.S. up and moving. Um, we're going to give you a more firm date on our next episode. So having said all of that, I'm going to let Joseph take it away, and we're going to delve into the issues of the day. And uh, before I let Joseph run away with it, I guess I'm going to start the direction off with our favorite spokesperson at the State Department. And today, she is so good, she says the president didn't know what he was saying when he said it. He thought he was saying something else. Should she be fired? Good evening, everyone. This is Joseph. One of the problems with any spokesperson is that they're nothing more than a talking head for the administration. You've had it with pretty much every president in the modern media age. What we see today isn't far removed as what we saw 50 years ago under another administration. The problem is you have a spokesperson who really is going to toe the line and repeat the rhetoric of the administration. Now, this spokesperson... And many spokespeople in the Obama administration will tell you one thing, even though they're lying straight to your face. And I think this is what this is another case of this. Okay, Obama didn't know what he was saying. That's just like Obama saying that he learned about scandal X, Y, and Z from the newspapers. It's good for a story on on 
the major media networks who aren't going to do any fact-checking. So why not come out with a blatant lie? Or, like they like to say, a untruth or um, misspeak. Well, I think that the president has a lot of misspeak and a lot of untruths. Now, they don't want to call them that, but the spokesperson... I haven't seen this on the on the front end. I can tell you exactly what happened. The White House staffer needed a fall guy because there was going to be backlash on what the president said and because she had caused them such headaches not just two weeks earlier. She's the fall person. Will she get fired? I doubt it. Will she wish she had been fired? Probably. We got to look at what's going on behind the scenes right now. You, you're not gonna; they're not gonna broadcast the reprimand she's gonna get from the higher ups in the administration. And of course, she's gonna wish she was fired, but she's gonna be made to do some grunt work behind the scenes. She's gonna be made to, to repent for what she's done. And I'm sure Valerie Jarrett's gonna take a few lashes at her, but. When this is all said and done, she's still going to be in the, in the uh, position, and it's going to be like nothing happened. That's going to be the public face of it. Yeah, when, she'll be, she, she will remain in the position because they don't want they don't want another person leaving the administration so soon. There's been, and this really hasn't been made public, but there's been a lot of shakeup uh, in recent weeks. And um, I'm not sure why there hasn't been a lot of talk about it, but there hasn't. And anyway, so she, but I will tell you this, when this administration's over, she will never, ever hold another high-profile government job. She may hold a government job. She may stay at the State Department, but she will be demoted the minute the new Secretary of State, whoever that is comes in, the first thing they're going to do, because she's protected by a union, so it'll be hard to get rid of her, but uh, the first thing they're going to do is demote her and put her back in the cubicle on the, in the bowels of the State Department. Or she's going to be made, uh, she's going to go to one of the major networks, much like a lot of uh, staffers have done over the last few years. And I'm thinking, maybe. Uh, go ahead. I was just going to say maybe. They're actually starting to get to where they don't want, they don't want the cast-offs. Um, even though, you know, and I think Rush Limbaugh said it best today when he said, you know, the cause goes on. Uh, and that these liberals, you know, he's looking at it from a different point of view. He thinks that she, she sold the president out outright to protect the liberal movement. Uh, and, you know, Rush and I kind of disagree on this, but let's not dwell too, let's, let's not dwell on this one too long. Uh, why don't you go ahead and launch into your your get started monologue here. Well, one of the most important things that's happened today 
was the um, the verdict in the uh, Sarnayev trial. Um, for those who don't know, uh, Sarnayev was one of the bombers of the Boston Marathon, which happened about two years ago. And he was found guilty on 30 counts. And with that guilty verdict, and all those guilty verdicts, I should say, he is eligible for the death penalty. And there's parts of me that says this person should deserves to be put to death for his crime. Then there's another part of me that says death is exactly what he wants. And if I had my way, I'd lock him up in a cell for the rest of his life with images of what he did. The just brutality in the acts that he helped commit on innocent people. But I want to also go into why I don't want the death penalty for this guy. Because the idea of the idea that a lot of these terrorists live by is that if they die for their God, that they will receive rewards in heaven. And death is what he's the warning. Because death is his way to get his reward. Now, I don't know what these people truly believe, because I think it's cowardly that they're going to kill the innocent in such a gruesome manner to please any deity. Personally, I think they're just a bunch of cowards because they don't look their victims in the face. They just set off a bomb or fly a plane into a building or just blow up a, a nice, an improvised explosive with no regard for anything. They're cowards. But I think this coward should be stand, should be held accountable for his actions. I would love for whoever, whichever prison houses him, to put images where he can't remove them from the walls so he gets to wake up every day and sees what he did. And it's, he, he's a young kid. He's only, what, 21, 22 at this point. Yeah. He's going to have the rest of his life to look at what he did, put in context what he did, and hopefully be tortured with it until he finally dies of natural causes. Well, uh, and A, they're going to hand him the death penalty. Uh, B, um, I look to see what Obama's going to do. Obama has proven that he's not a supporter of the death penalty. And as you know, any federal inmate that is sentenced to death, um, it does rarely happen. You know, it's not very often that the feds whip out the death penalty. But when they do, it's the president who has the final say on any inmate that is on death row in the federal penal system. And that's pardons and whatnot notwithstanding. I mean, he has that over anybody. But as far as when their death warrants are signed, how that works, the president handles that. Um, Care to guess how many 
President Obama has carried out during his term. Done. Zip. Zero. As a matter of fact, he has very quietly commuted 15 people. I have a feeling that since this is such a high-profile case, that if he does commute the sentence from death to life in prison, that's going to be a big backlash against him. That may tarnish his legacy. Mind you, the death warrant won't be signed by him. It's going to take about 16 years after appeals before this actually goes through. So it's not going to be this administration nor the next and probably not even the next who signs that death warrant. I, I hope that they fast-track his appeals. I hope they do a very similar thing that they did with Timothy McVeigh. But, uh, you know, but if I'm not mistaken, Timothy McVeigh waived his appeals because he, he wanted did, to die. He did after the second round. Mm-hmm. Um, he did after the second round. But they had done those first two rounds of appeals in record time. They were, you know, they were moving to expedite him through. Um, and there are several others that are never going to see the death penalty in the federal system that need to. Um, Talik Mashaik, uh, Talik Muhammad, the one they've got stashed in New York. Um, you know, there's there's several that I wish would would experience the death penalty, and we should do the death penalty here very in these cases, very differently. For example, anybody that sympathizes with the 9-11 hijackers, they're convicted of treason. If you'll notice in the Constitution, it lays out exactly what the punishment is for treason. It also lays out that your appeal process is very expedited. I think we ought to have public hang This guy, I think we just turn him loose on the street uh, in Boston where the marathon happened and let the people deal with it. I have a better solution. Put him in J-pop. Yeah, he goes in J-pop. He did. Oh, yeah. He won't last yeah. the, the afternoon. You know, I, I have to defend here. I, I've got to defend um, the, our prison population. Uh, and, and I know that some people are going to raise their eyebrows at that. But um, for whatever people think about individuals that are behind bars, for whatever reason they're behind bars, they are first and foremost American. They may not like the system. They may rail against the system, but it is their system. And when you attack that system, being an outsider, they will get you. And it's interesting. I can tell you a case where... A individual was very supportive of the oh not the Taliban Al Qaeda and they were in the prison system spouting their crap about Al Qaeda and when the towers fell several of these individuals were all happy and jumpy and, and just having a grandiose time. Well, if you <laughs> have read any of the cases, you know what happened to these individuals. The guards accidentally opened the doors. 
to the cells on the cell block. Evidently, on that particular cell block, they do rec time in shifts. Only so many people at a time. Well, I'll be ding-dang if uh, they didn't accidentally just open up all those doors. So, you know, you're right. If he gets put... Now, if he's on death row, if he's on death row in the federal slammer, most likely, most death row inmates, if I'm not mistaken, go to Leavenworth. Uh, and then in such time, they'll be confined to their cell 23 hours a day. And they'll be able to have TV, radio. I mean, they'll everything they do will happen in that cell. And they'll have perks and comforts that we don't have. Uh, but, yeah, I, I'm with you. Release them in the general population. There are also a couple of other interesting verdicts. I don't know if you're going to talk about those or not, but there were a couple of others. Uh, the the bomber notwithstanding. And for those of you that are listening, there is going to be some background noise for a couple of minutes, and I do apologize for that. Uh, but I'm kind of multitasking. As a matter of fact, uh, Joseph, if you will uh, segue into our next topic, that'd be awesome, and hopefully I can get this stuff done while you're segueing. Well, I think one of the most important topics of the week has to be the Iranian deal. And it's coming out, it's coming to light what was actually negotiated with the Iranians. For those who don't know, what the Iranian deal spells out is that Iran agrees to suspend their nuclear program for the next 10 years. They don't have to get rid of everything, per se. They just have to shut it down. And what their program is made up of right now are centrifuges. When you are enriching uranium, what you get is raw uranium ore, which is sort of like um, uranium oxide. In order to, to make usable uranium, you must spin it in a centrifuge, turn it into um, uranium gas. That uranium gas becomes solid form, and you can refine it up to 80 to 100% for weapons grade and for nuclear power grade material it has to be about 80%. Now, as far as we know because Iran is a closed society the weapon the uh the grade of the uranium is at about 20%. But it wouldn't take that long to push that 20% uranium into 80% and a weapons grade form. With the weapons-grade form, it was, it's only a matter of wiring up a bomb, and you have a nuclear device that can, is as potent as the ones that were dropped on Hiroshima and Hiroshima. Now, where we stand today, there are conflicting reports from different um, foreign agencies Iran is only a few months to a year away from actually attaining a nuclear weapon. 
Now, they've been in cahoots with the Pakistan, with the Pakistani uh, scientists. They've been in cahoots with the North Korean scientists. There's also some uh, evidence that Russian scientists and Chinese scientists are also helping them along. So it's not it's not that unlikely that if something doesn't happen quickly, they will obtain a nuclear weapon. Now, what this deal made by uh, John Kerry and the uh, president lays out is that Iran will stop using the centrifuges, stop enriching the uranium for 10 years. And after that, and in return for that, they will get sanctions lifted upon their country. Uh, the country of Iran has had sanctions from the United States and most of Europe since the 79 revolution. And it's been affecting the economy ever since. Sunday, when this deal was sort of finalized, you had cheers in the streets, you had the foreign minister uh, touting this as a major win for the Iranians. When, in hindsight, what the U.S. has done is suspend the nuclear capability of Iran until, at the latest, 2028. Which means if nothing happens between now and 2028, there is a possibility that one of the most radical regimes in the world will have access to nuclear weapons. And with that being said, you also have the countries in the Middle East like Jordan and Saudi Arabia and to a lesser extent um, Syria who are going to pursue nuclear weapons just as a counter to what the Iranians have. But people who look at the Middle East and think this is an Arab land or this is a Muslim land, we are confused to the fact that there are two sects of Islam that have been fighting each other for the last thousand years. The Shiites and the Sunnis. Your countries like Jordan, Saudi Arabia, um, United Arab Emirates, I mean, most of the countries in these, um, the Arab Peninsula and most of the Arab world is Sunni. You you have small pockets of Shiite countries, which are Iran, a good bit of um, Iraq. And they have been using their influence in Syria and in Yemen and all of this. If you watch the news when they talk about the, um, the Iranian influence in certain parts of the world, like with Hezbollah or with um, the Muslim Brotherhood or with Hamas, that is a Sunni, I'm sorry, that's a Shiite-led um, coalition with the Iranians. <clears throat> now, the biggest problem with Iran getting a nuclear weapon 
is the fact that they intend on using it. And they have continuously said that their end goal is the death of Israel, that the world could not exist with Israel, so they will wipe it off the map. And they have been testing long-range and short-range weaponry that can easily strike Israel and easily strike Europe. One of the scariest parts of this deal is they do not limit their testing of long- and short-range weaponry. So once they attain a nuclear weapon, they can easily mount it on a warhead, on a missile, and ship it over to wherever they want it to go. And that's the major concern in the Middle East. That's why you have so many people like Benjamin Netanyahu, which are screaming that this deal is garbage. But you have Obama and you have Kerry who are touting this deal as one as a great political achievement. And for different reasons. I think one for John Kerry is he wants to run for president next year. And with something like this and maybe the mantra of getting a Nobel Peace Prize because of this, he would be a viable candidate for the presidency. For Obama, he needs a legacy because as as he stands right now, he's a failed president. His major achievement was the Affordable Health Care Act, which has been a dismal failure. So in order for him to show something that he was president, this is his this is one of his he wants this to be one of his crowning achievements. Now, a few weeks ago, there was a Republican-led effort to let Iran know that whatever this president, whatever deal this president makes, will not be the deal when the next administration takes office. And of course, many Republicans were ostracized in the media because of this. When in hindsight, the Republicans are doing the right thing because we're looking at both a national security issue and a worldwide security issue with this regime. And there is nothing more scarier than the idea of a nuclear weapon built in Iran showing up at a harbor in America. And that's one of the things we're trying to prevent here. Yeah, I'm here. Well, I think that I think you are right in that John Kerry sees a Nobel Peace Prize. I know that John Kerry would love to be president, and John Kerry would like to go up against a Bush to do it. Um, however, I think there's a little more play here. And I think that Obama, I am, you know, a a liberal friend. Well, I'm not going to call him a liberal. A friend of mine who is a Democrat in California um, often says that the reason people are mad at Obama is because Obama's done what he said he was going to do. And, you know, there's some truth in that. He has done what he said he was going to do in the fact that he has single-handedly tried to destroy America's sovereignty. And 
by allowing Iran to be stronger and seek the bomb, because I'm just going to tell you right now, they're not going to wait 10 years. They're not going to wait 13 years. Uh, there is some good news behind all this stuff. There is some good news. The president cannot sign a treaty or a fully binding agreement without Congress. And right now, the House nor the Senate, and I think it's the Senate that ratifies, neither governing body are going to go for this. There's enough Democrats that oppose uh, this mess. So uh, if there is a silver lining, that's it. And, And Tennessee's own Bob Corker is the one leading the fight for that. But the president has already said that this will not be a treaty per se. This will be um, this will be more or less an executive action, executive, yeah, executive action, where he signs something with another with a foreign government, and because the sanctions are involved, it does have to go to Congress and has to pass the Senate, but. Who's to say he won't bypass that? Because this president is not the most constitutional that we've ever had, not by a long shot. And he's going to subvert any way he can to put this out in play. I find it I find it highly amusing that he is an alleged constitutional lawyer. I find it ironic that he actually had a constitutional class. Uh, Hell, I had I, con law in college. I know I could probably. I, I don't know if he's he's he's. You know, it, it really takes some stones. It really does to go on national television and proclaim that you are this and you are that, and subvert the Constitution the way he has been doing. And he continues to do it. Because, like he said, he has a pen and a phone, and he's going to use it. Well, I, I think that I think more troubling are the likes of Harry Reid. It's one thing for a president to do those things. It's quite another for Harry Reid to come out and say, "Well, of course I know I lied about Romney not paying his taxes. He didn't win, did he?" and laugh it off. Sadly, that crap happens on both sides. Sadly, all the time now. When I first got into politics, you, as President Reagan would say, it was cocktails at dust, pistols at dawn. Now, it's not that way at all. It's very personal. It's very mean. Um, And... You know, even under the Clinton administration, and this will probably be one of the few times you hear me defend the Clinton, even under the Clinton administration, when the day was over, the day was over. James Carville and company was out with the the opposition having drinks, having a good time until, you know, the next day, and you're back to work. Well, during those administrations, during most of the administration in this country, if you look at the Reagan administration, with all the fights he had with Tip O'Neill, at the end of the day, him and Tip O'Neill would sit down in the White House and have drinks. And it was nothing for these people to get along with each other because 
they were the leadership of this country. Now you have a division of Democrats versus Republicans, Republicans versus Tea Party, conservatives versus whatever the hell they are at this point. And it's become more, it's become less of a, a, how can I put this? It's become less of a game of honor and more like a schoolyard brawl. It's like high school in Washington. At recess, you hear what little Susie is doing, and you hear what little Jimmy's doing, and you pick on them for no apparent reason other than they don't wear the same kind of shoes that everyone else is wearing. It's something that stupid and that idiotic. And the media isn't helping, both sides of the media, where you have the liberal media who's going after Republicans, telling bold-faced lies, defending the administration, and defending the policies that are ruining this country. And also you have the conservative media who's going to go after the liberals and go after the Democrats and do and say this and say that and say this. No one ever really gets a straight answer anymore. You almost have to watch both sides and figure out which one's lying, which one's telling half-truths, and put it all together and come up with something relatively close to the truth. It's sad that there is no more Mr. Smith. I believe Mr. Smith died with Gregory Peck. You know, but it's funny you should make uh, that Mary, Go ahead. It's just funny that you would make that reference because I was sitting here thinking Mr. Smith goes to Washington. But I want to hearken back to Reagan and Tip O'Neill. Tip O'Neill was invited to the White House on his 77th birthday. And President Reagan, of course, you know, they were sharing drinks. And President Reagan did a toast to him. And he said, Tip, he said, if I had a ticket to heaven and you didn't, I'd sell mine and go to hell with you. Now, that was meant to have a little laugh to it, but there's also some seriousness behind it because in in the Reagan years, Chip O'Neill knew he could call the president and say, hey, you know, here's something that's bothering me. What can we do? And they would work together and find a solution. And even, you know, the next Congress, which was Newt Gingrich and company, they tried that early on, and all it ever came out to was Republicans should kowtow and nobody else needed to. Well, that's not compromise. And then you've got, uh, I'll give you another example of Reagan. Uh, excuse me. Reagan found a medal when he took office in the White House. It was to one of the Kennedys. And Jimmy Carter, as many know, did not believe in giving out medals from the military, so he wouldn't do it. And he invited, Reagan called up the Kennedys, uh, Ted Kennedy, and asked him if the Kennedy family would like to come to the White House and just kind of hang out. Now, what Republican today, or even Democrat today, okay, Obama, um, you know, would Obama call up the Bushes and say, hey, you know, I found something here, why don't y'all come spend the day down here and, and bring everybody? 
not going to do that. And um, for those of you that wonder why I'm referencing some of this stuff, there are two wonderful books. One is called When Character Was King by Peggy Newman. Uh, Peggy's book's a little... Uh, if you're going to do it, I would suggest doing it on audio. Um, she she reads the book and does a very good job. The other is called A Different Drummer by Mike Beaver. And Mike gives a Mike gives the story of Reagan from before he was governor, governor through the radio days through the presidency. And you know, Mike was one of the few people that was with him side by side, day by day, for thirty years. So some some great anecdotes in there that everybody should uh, should take a moment and uh, read if you get time. Uh, okay, uh, go ahead and take it away. I think for the most part, one of the problems with government itself is that you almost don't have a representative democracy anymore. You pretty much have an oligarchy, an elected oligarchy, but an, oligar- an oligarchy nonetheless, that these people become the royal court of old, that they become, they get elected into office, and they immediately forsake the voters until it's election season again. I mean, you cannot tell me that people like Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid are looking after their constituents. And on the same hand, you can't say that people like Mitch McConnell or even uh, John Bolton are looking after their constituents. It's become more or less a, we live in Washington now. We're the elite of this country now. So we're going to be the ruling class. And that's one of the problems. When Mr. Smith went to Washington, Mr. Smith knew that he was a representative of the people, that he wasn't anointed by the people as their end-all, be-all ruler, but as their representative. And the amount of, a lot of the politicians that I have met, some are very humble, some love the job, they love to serve the public, and they seek, they, they seek the office because of their love of service. There are some that they have the office, and now I am much bigger than I was prior. And that mentality is really what's the detriment of this country. We no longer have the idea of go to Washington, serve the people. It's go to Washington, serve your donors. Because without your donors, you're nothing. Serve the people who are going to put you in office. Not the voters, the money backers. When you look at some of the prominent people in this country, the big names, say, in the Tea Party movement, they are people who are actually listening to their constituents. People like Ted Cruz and Rand Paul, Mike Lee, 
they're listening to their public. They don't they were elected for a specific reason. And of course, they can't always bring home the bacon per se because they know that they're one of a one of a larger group. You look in the last 4 years since Republicans took over the house in 2010, you had what 50 repeals of Obamacare. None of them passed or actually became law. They passed the the house but never became law. They were tabled in the Senate. And even if it did get past the Senate, it was never going to make it to the light of day anyway. It's that symbolic act that they're showing their public, oh, yeah, we're doing something. But then once their day of work is over, it's a big party. And I jokingly say that it's bacon-wrapped shrimp and champagne on the on the people's dime. And it's not that far off from that. When no, you have you're, to be you're you're spot on in that uh in that aspect. And you know, one of the things that you mentioned is that the Tea Party is listening to their base. And <laughs> yeah, to some degree maybe. Um, we're going to do a show coming up, and probably our next show will focus solely on the Tea Party and how it originated and what it has morphed into. But one of the things that we have to look at, uh, Joseph, is that politics is, is run by 20-something, okay? And they're the ones making the decisions. People think that the president makes the decisions. He really doesn't. All the information that he gets and sees is all filtered. And if you want to blame anybody for the culture of politics, you need to blame the political scientists and political strategists that make and mold and advise these candidates. And, you know, I I take responsibility for part of that because I'm a political scientist and you know, I have advised many people, uh, and I can tell you, quite honestly, that a lot of times my advice is how to get my candidate elected, and once he's elected, how to keep his job. So, you know, I'm guilty of that, too. Well, I'll tell you an interesting story. In 2010, there was a guy running for Congress in my area by the name of Hunt Downer. Hunt is actually a family friend of mine. My great aunt was his personal secretary for about 30 years. He, from all the stories that I heard from her, he was one of the the greatest men that she's ever known. He was a um, major general within the Louisiana National Guard, served tours in Iraq. He had spent time in the Louisiana legislature, including as Speaker of the House. His only problem was he was a Democrat at one point who switched to the Republican Party. Now, this isn't new in Louisiana politics because many 
conservatives in Louisiana were Democrats because you had to get elected. You could not get elected with the R in your name in Louisiana up until the mid-90s, really. Well, I met with this, with the, I call him General. I met with the General about two weeks before his runoff election with a guy named Jeff Landry, who later became the congressman. The guy who was managing his campaign was a kid in his mid-twenties who was really out of his element. At this point, I had already had, I had already graduated from college. I had my political science degree, and he and I were talking. And my focus was never in running campaigns. I knew how it was done to a certain extent. But the conversation that I had with this kid made me like, made me ask, what the heck was the candidate thinking? Well, most and, of the time, candidates are, the problem is, is that a candidate is so focused on everything else that they're doing that, um, you know, they have, just let's be honest, in politics, usually it's a friend of one of your major donors or the son of a major donor or little Johnny is getting a degree of political science, so let's give him a chance. Um, and unfortunately, that you know these candidates get in these situations, and they don't know. I mean, truthfully, and if you've if you've ever worked a full fledged, hell bent, moving forward campaign, the candidate literally gets up, showers, puts on a suit, gets in a town car, and goes where the eighteen year old that's driving him takes him. He gets out. He makes a speech, and that's the way it goes. Everything else, oh, yeah, and he begs for money. Everything else is done by this team. Usually there's one old geezer, such as myself, and then everybody else is under 20. Well, I've seen, I've seen a lot of campaigns in this area where it has the campaign team has run a horrible campaign, and the candidate ended up losing, even though that he should have won in a landslide. And it really, it aggravates me. It aggravates me to no end knowing that someone who is right for the position is steered in the wrong direction by a, by a faulty team. I have given advice to many politicians, and many politicians have thought I was a genius, yet it was too late for them to do anything. The, the colonel, for example, was two weeks out from, a, from, the, from the general election. There was no way he was going to win. I had known that. He had known that. But if he had started maybe six months prior with better ideas brought forth by his leadership team, he, had, he might still be the congressman in, in the area. Now, the campaign manager, who was in his mid-20s, just happened to be a friend of his daughter. And his daughter holds a political science degree. She helped with the campaign. The friend was the campaign manager, but it was run by 20-somethings who really didn't know anything. 
a lot of campaigns, unfortunately, are run that way. But I'll tell you, without going too far into campaigns, because that's, uh, you know, that's a show for another time and we're coming up on our, our deadline, but uh, campaigns are interesting. And one of the things that I do in every campaign that I take on, whatever the role that I choose to take on, in recent years, I'm, I'm usually the boss. But what I do is I encourage all of my staff, uh, well, let me rephrase that. I don't encourage, I basically tell them to go out and I want them to talk to 15 people. They cannot be 15 people in the same place. You have to go to all walks of life, all businesses, just random people. Don't tell them what you're doing. Don't tell them who you work for. Just talk to them about, you know, I always can segue into any issue with any person and get them to talk. Most of the people that I usually end up hiring can do the same thing. Uh, You take that stuff, you bring it back to the table, and you say, okay, here's what I found out. Well, what you're going to find is these 15 people, six of them are going to come back and have a couple of issues that the majority of the people are really passionate about. And it's going to be something that's not on the national radar. So that's where you start. And it's amazing the difference that I can I can take an inexperienced person that's never run campaigns, wide-eyed, you know, uh, <laughs> dealing with their first campaign and turn them into not necessarily a political scientist, but a decent uh, what they would call political operative. And I use, I don't use gadgets. Do I use polling? Yes, I do, but um, the polling is only for me and the senior staff. We never show the candidate, and we never release the internals of that poll. And I'm one of the few political scientists that will make sure that a poll is weighted properly. I cannot stand reading these polls and find that they were weighted 15 points in a certain direction. Well, when you, you know, I'll give an example. A CNN poll the other day had Hillary Clinton leading Jeb Bush by six points, okay, in a head-to-head matchup. Well, I go into this poll, and I'm looking at it, and I'm like, there's really no way she can be leading by six, maybe a dead-on tie. Well, I get to looking at how the poll was weighted and how they asked their questions and who they asked their questions to. And what you found was actually when you apply the weight properly in this polling data, you find that Bush was actually up by two points, which has been the margin of error. And uh, so these polls are very skewed. Fox News, and people are going to laugh when I say this and say that I'm just defending Fox News. I'm really not. But Fox News, interestingly enough, when they do a poll, most people don't know this. They have a Democrat team do it and a Republican team do it. They hire two companies every time to do this poll. Each one of them independently does the poll. And you know what they have found? That the individuals that do the polls for Fox News, because they know the other team is doing it too, they evenly weight their polls. And you'll find that most of their numbers come out to be the same, which I really find 
which I really find amusing that uh, that Fox is much aligned with being conservative, and they're the only ones that give both sides and, and hire, you know, right-leaning or left-leaning uh, think tanks to do their jobs. But anyway, uh, we digress. I, I we're, we're kind of at a at a place where we need to end. Uh, this has been a a show that has led to other show ideas. Uh, and I'll just tell the audience, one of those things is uh, political campaigns and how they work. A lot of people don't understand how they truly work. Uh, and number two uh, would be, oh, shoot, I just went blank. Joseph, bail me out here. I said something about it earlier. Oh, um, stories from Reagan. Yeah. Political stories. stories. Political stories. Uh, there's a book out, and, and this will be my closing thing. There's a book that just was released today uh, from people that have worked at 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue over 10 administrations. And they were dishing the dirt on some of the people. And they said that, and, and most of this is already known, but that uh, the Clintons treat their agents with such disrespect, and that Chelsea Clinton referred to the Secret Service as pigs, and when asked why, well, that's what my parents called them. And uh, you're just going to have to read some of these excerpts from these books. They loved H.W. and Barbara, said they were very respectful to every person in the home. The Clintons broke priceless items during fights and blah, blah, blah. Um, They loved Reagan. Uh, As a matter of fact, Several White House employees took extended leaves of absences, like several years, to help care for Reagan. So it's quite interesting to see uh, the character of the occupants of the White House. Um, one thing I haven't done on this episode that I should do is thank the sponsors that uh, sponsor us, whether it be through cash, whether it be through some props on the website or free chicken sandwich uh, coupons, which, by the way, we have given away the last of those uh, to a gentleman in the state of New York where there are no Chick-fil-A's. He's going to be traveling and has heard great things about Chick-fil-A and wants to try them out. Tell him you get the waffle fries. You'll love them. That's how I told my dad on him. My dad hated Chick-fil-A. He thought until he tried those waffle fries. Can guess where he goes all the time now? Chick-fil-A. Anyway, they didn't invent the chicken, just the chicken sandwich. For those of you that like to read the newspapers, as I do, you will like the Wall Street Journal, where they deliver the right news at the right time. And no, I'm not talking about right meaning. So you can get that at wsj.com. Go up in the upper right-hand corner, type in political straight talk. They'll give you a discount. And when you subscribe, they'll send me some money, which makes it even better. I want to thank everybody for tuning in and listening to Joseph and I go back and forth and talk about issues that you may have heard in the news, but you didn't hear our breakdown. And so you hear our breakdown, you haven't got the whole story. I can't say that other phrase because it's copyrighted by uh, a certain family out of Chicago, and they won't like it if I say something about my last name and being the rest of it. So I won't. Uh, Having said that, Freedom is not free, people. 
Thank you, soldier. By the way, the restaurant Applebee's, uh, I would encourage every listener to boycott them. I have went into the Applebee's in my town four times now to find a flag that is on a, a freestanding pole inside the restaurant, you know, like you would put up at church or whatever. It has slipped. Uh, the top threading has broken or slipped or something, and the flag is touching the floor. I've asked them on multiple occasions to fix that. They just look at me, roll their eyes, and tell me that it's not important. So yesterday, I showed them how important that it was, and I tied the flag up so that it was not touching the floor. I'd much rather it be tied up across the pole to keep from touching the floor than touching the floor. Freedom is not free. Do not disrespect our flag. Yes, it is just a piece of cloth. But it is our flag, and many people have died for it from 1776 on up. Respected. You've got to stand for something, or you'll fall for anything. I think those are key words in this time. Until next time, everybody, this is Joseph and Fabian saying have a good night, everybody.